Open mine eyes that I may see Glimpses of truth thou hast for me Open mine eyes, illumine me Spirit divine Love of my life, I am crying I am not dying, I am dancing Dancing along in the madness There is no sadness like to invite you to a soul-level encounter. Music has an incredible ability to proclaim the soul's language beyond what mere words can speak. That's what we seek as we invite our guests to share their song of the soul. You will hear the music that has charted the steps of their spiritual journey, that has provided a touchstone in the soul's dark night and sung the heart's awe and joy when come to the light. Over the next hour, you will be a witness and companion to our guests' spiritual path and sacred testimony. Welcome to Song of the Soul. Today for Song of the Soul, I have the privilege of welcoming singer-songwriter David Rovix. David is widely known for his music, but mostly among those with a burning passion for peace and social justice issues. If you haven't heard him before, you're in for a treat. A note about how I choose my guests. Increasingly, they're contacting me, but David is someone I track down after becoming familiar with his music. I hadn't met him before, hadn't seen him in concert, and didn't really know that much about him, but his music resonated for me. Some of you might be tempted to think that I had some connection to him through my Quaker connection, because it turns out that David's mother is Quaker, but no, I didn't know that ahead of time, and David himself is not Quaker. You don't need any kind of special connection to me to share with my audience. I just love to invite people in to share the music of their souls. And David is a wonderful example. So again, perhaps you've considered offering to share your song of the soul. Just go to my northernspiritradio.org webpage, check out my description of the process, and then contact me. But wait until you have a chance to listen to today's guest, David Rovix, as he shares his song of the soul. David, welcome to Song of the Soul. Thank you, Mark. Glad to be there in the virtual world, at least. In the background, I hear uh, some delightful gurgling. What is that noise back there? That is my daughter, Layla, and my cousin, Kate, who's who's playing Legos with her in the background. You mean that they're playing Legos and you're choosing to be on the phone instead of playing with them? 
I know, terrible, huh? Got to do other things sometimes. <laughs> sometimes. You just got back from a trip over in Europe. Where were you touring? I was just mainly doing a couple of gigs in Denmark and otherwise just chilling out for the holidays there because my daughter and her mom were in California during that time anyway, so I figured I'd go somewhere too. <laughs> How is it that you got your connection with folks over there? Because after all, even though a lot of us really love your music, appreciate what you're saying about you are not a household name in the United States. How does it happen that all those European countries are able to recognize you, turn out people for your performances? Well, I'm not really a household name anywhere, really, but Utah Phillips would say that uh, he's famous among dozens worldwide, and, you know, that's a slight understatement. But I have sort of fans scattered around the world, and I think that's partly just how it is with the Internet and also partly how it is when you're sort of connected with the anti-war movement and the global justice movement. And certainly, the, I mean, the global justice movement sort of by definition is a global movement, and the anti-war movement has certain aspects of internationalism as well. So these things sort of just happen. I mean, there are specific stories for each country and how I first started playing gigs in each country. But then once it happens, then I just you know start developing a fan base and the gigs kind of diversify a bit. Is it your sense that there's maybe a greater concentration of those involved in the peace movement and global justice over in Europe? or in at least certain countries in Europe than in general in the United States? It really uh, varies depending on the times. I would say seven years ago, the global justice movement was pretty much the same in North America and in Europe. And I'd say the movement was very similar at that time. And then after September 11th, when the Bush administration really used the opportunity to further their imperialist and neoliberal agenda, to use a couple of buzzwords that are both perfectly fitting, the movement really suffered severely in the United States. But in Canada and in Europe, it, it continued along the lines of how it was then. I don't think it would be fair to say necessarily that it's growing, but it's not shrinking the way it did so dramatically in the U.S. My sense is that in some ways it's certainly recovered in the United States. Public opinion has changed. You're not in danger of being stoned in public if you're a peacenik. Have you felt that change over the past seven years? Absolutely. I mean, in terms of the global justice movement, that's not happening the way it was in the U.S. But in terms of the peace movement, the anti-war movement, that certainly grew tremendously after September 11th and reached its peak just before the invasion of Iraq. It certainly still exists, and I, I don't know if it would be fair to say that it's going strong. I think there's a real widespread feeling of helplessness and cynicism in the U.S., which is understandable but not very productive. I'm going to get into your music right away. We've got several songs we want to do for your Song of the Soul, David. Which one would you like to start with? Where can we start out to get some sense of where your soul sings? Who Would Jesus Bomb is the one that we could start out with. And I mean, the song was inspired by post-September 11th sort of, you know, insanity. And Bush talking about crusades, you know, he was talking about how we're on a crusade against terror. And it's just amazing that somebody could use the term crusade when they're talking about the predominantly Christian so-called country invading Muslim countries because there was a crusade. And it's not a pretty thing that any sane person would want to hearken back to. And this has been something that's characterized our society and many societies around the world for a long time, is those who are trying to use religion to further 
the goals of the empire or the goals of the rich towards domination in their own society or in the world, and other people who see religion, in particular Christianity, as being a religion that doesn't promote this kind of violence and empire building and this sort of thing. You know, they see Jesus as having set a very different kind of example for how we should be living. And certainly I grew up with that kind of idea, not preached at me necessarily, because my mom was a is a Quaker, and they don't tend to do a lot of preaching. They just believe what they believe and try to act on those beliefs, which is also a uh, tends to be a Christian principle among a lot of Christians. And with this particular song, Who Would Jesus Bomb? I mean, of course, the slogan already existed, a uh, play on the fundamentalist thing where they wear bracelets and say, what would Jesus do? I was in a Whole Foods market in Houston, Texas, and I was wearing my favorite T-shirt and a picture of George Bush and the words international terrorist on it. And this guy came up to me, and he was livid with rage. He was shaking physically and pointing at the picture of George Bush, and he was saying, he's a man of God, he's a man of God. And I asked him, who would Jesus bomb? And he just was completely befuddled, like he had never considered this question before, and he was just shaking and had no idea how to respond for several minutes. And finally his wife came to his defense and said, you must not watch the news, there are bad people out there. Which Jesus would, of course, go out and bomb, right? Of course, yeah, yeah. Were you actually raised, uh, was your mother Quaker when you were upbringing? Did you go to first day school or hang around meeting or? Well, I, you know, I think I'd have to ask her, but I think when I was a little kid, I might have gone to a daycare that was in the Quaker meeting house, but I can't remember. But she didn't actually start, I mean, we knew that the Quaker meeting house was just right down the road from where we lived in Wilton, Connecticut. But I don't think she started going to meeting until I was around 10. And I never particularly felt inspired to spend an hour sitting quietly on Sunday after spending way too many hours sitting quietly in school all week. So I didn't go. I just hung out and did my own thing. And it was never particularly pressed on me that I should do it. My dad's of Jewish lineage and not particularly religious, and, and neither am I, but certainly have been exposed to Quaker ideas and I guess to some extent through my dad's family to Jewish ideas, but nobody in his family is particularly religious, at least not when I was growing up. Let's listen to the song right away. It's Who Would Jesus Bomb? And it's by my guest for today's song of the soul, David Rolfix. I've seen you in the markets, I've seen you in the streets, and at your political conventions. Talking of your crusade, talking of your nation, and other things too terrible to mention. And you proclaim your Christianity, you proclaim your love of God, you talk of apple pie and mine. I've just got one question, and I want an answer, tell me, who would Jesus bomb? Jesus would bomb the Syrians Cause they're not Jews like him Maybe Jesus would bomb the Afghans On some kind of vengeful whim Maybe Jesus would drive an M1 tank And he would shoot Saddam Who would Jesus bomb? Yes, I've seen you on the TV and on the battleships. I've seen you in the house on the hill. 
I've heard you talking about making the world safer and about all the men you have to kill. And you speak so glibly about your civilization and how you have the moral higher ground. While halfway around the world, your explosives smash the buildings, if you could only hear the sound. But maybe Jesus would sell landmines and turn on his electric chair. Maybe Jesus would show no compassion for his enemies in the lands way over there. Maybe Jesus would have flown the planes that killed the kids in Vietnam. Jesus bomb. Yes, I hear you shout with confidence as you praise the Lord and you talk about this God you know so well. You talk of Armageddon and your final victory when all the evil forces go to hell. Well, you'd best hope you've chosen wisely on the right side of the Lord. And when you die, your conscience, it is clear. You'd best hope your atom bombs are better than the sword at the time when your reckoning is here. Because I don't think Jesus would send gunships into Bethlehem or jets to raise the towns of Chimeries. I don't think Jesus would lend money to dictators or drive those SUVs. I don't think Jesus would ever have dropped a single ounce of napalm. Who would Jesus bomb? Who would Jesus bomb? Who would Jesus bomb? Who Would Jesus Bomb? I think you got the message pretty clear from the song. David Rovex wrote that song. David, so you described yourself as not particularly religious or spiritual or something. Who would you call your core group? Who would you call your, I don't know, your homies, your, the people who support you and you support them and they're always, you're going to be there for each other? What kind of associations do you have like that? Well, it's a wonderfully diverse group of people. I've been really blessed to come into contact, you know, regular contact with a a lot of different kinds of people all over the world. It would be tough to, I don't know, I guess I could generalize and and say it's people who are struggling for making the world a better place in generally progressive left-wing kind of ways. (laughs) I guess that would be a real broad kind of way to sweep them all together, but I can tell you who these people are because, for better or for worse, it's often only one kind of set that'll tend to come to a gig, depending on who organizes the gig, for example. So sometimes I'll I'll play for a crowd of uh, mostly anti-war activists where the average age might be 50, and although there'd be a lot of younger and older folks. But then I'll do a gig for the so-called anti-globalization crowd, which will tend to be you know, an average of at least 20 years younger and more of them dressed in black and more facial piercings. and But then uh, you know, the next day I might do a gig at a Palestinian cultural center where most of the crowd will be from somewhere in the Arab world. It varies in wonderful ways. 
I play for the communists in Denmark. I used to play for the communists almost as much as I played for the anarchists, and the crowds would be totally different crowds. I mean, they never come to each other's gigs. And the hippies, too. Like, they got their own playing at Christiania, for example, in Copenhagen, or playing in town and in, in, in a squat or something. It'll be two entirely separate crowds sometimes. And it's kind of amusing how it is, but it's easy to tell who my audience is anyway. It's too bad we can't get all of those crowds to unite together. I think that would be a really powerful, positive force in the world. It certainly can be done sometimes, but it requires organizers that have their tentacles in all of those communities, and that's not that common. I guess if I were more famous, then, you know, sort of me having my tentacles in all those communities would work if I got some media coverage for a gig or something. Well, we'll do what we can to help spread the word here. Speaking of the great uniters, love is the great uniters, and I think the next song you picked is, in its deepest sense, it's it's a personal love song, but it's a song about affirmation, all this kind of thing. Why did you pick Life is Beautiful as part of your song of the soul? I think it's so important to uh, remember, as if anybody could forget, that if any of us who are trying to make the world a better place are probably feeling that way because we have an attachment to life and we think that the world is actually a beautiful place that's worth saving. I think people that are feeling generally hopeless or discouraged or unhappy don't maybe think that it's worth saving as much as those of us who actually think the world's a wonderful place and humanity is generally a beautiful species. And I certainly feel that way. And that song is a more overt communication of that idea than a lot of others. Let's listen to Life is Beautiful by David Rovix. You're sitting there in front of me, floating in a cloud. Your chocolate eyes meet mine, you're whispering out loud. Thoughts that make me shiver, words that make me melt. And I can only be thankful for the deal I've been dealt. For the birds outside this window, for this guitar on my knee. For the smile on your lips, for the good you found in me. Looking at the wood stove and the towels upon the sink With your fingers on my forehead All that I can think is Life is beautiful For the way you kiss my fingers For the way you hold my hands For the way you look in those leather pants For the times like now when I just gotta roll another smoke Breathe deeply for a moment And take another toke Life is beautiful We can spend the evening dreaming of the rising of the sun And even when the shadows look me right in the eye I feel your heart within my belly like the stars up in the sky Life is 
beautiful. Life is beautiful. song of the soul david rovix life is beautiful actually you know david when i first on the album list saw that song i was thinking it probably had something to do with the movie did you see the movie life is beautiful yeah yeah the song isn't related of course to the movie but that movie was fantastic such a happy sad ending let's go on to song number three you've picked out for song of the soul all the ghosts that walk this earth what led you to write this song it's one of several songs that I've written about my friend Eric Mark, who was a close friend of mine and housemate of mine when I lived in San Francisco, which was most recently in 1993. And he was shot to death when we went out one night. And that was a formative experience for me in a lot of ways. And that song's about him. Can you talk about how that transformed your life, what, what you were before, what you were since, and and why this was so influential for you? It just made reality a lot more three-dimensional. I mean, one thing that was so transformative for me was I was so felt so much grief and so much sadness, and I was just walking around one day soon after Eric was killed and walking around in the Mission District in San Francisco where he was killed by young gangsters. And I was looking at the faces of people sitting on their stoops and doorsteps and stuff around the Mission District. And the Mission is largely populated by economic refugees and political refugees from Latin America, Central America especially. I was just seeing for the first time the, the grief in the faces of so many people in around there and suddenly in a visceral way just realizing that they all had suffered from this kind of experience and probably far more and far worse, you know, people from escaping the U.S.-sponsored civil wars in Guatemala and El Salvador and Nicaragua and Chiapas. And it was uh, it was so powerful for me. And, and I had been involved somehow or other in the struggle for justice in Latin America and certainly had read books and met people. And it, it was not the same as having this experience of loss that suddenly in some way propelled me into the hearts of a lot of people that I wasn't really so connected with before. It's All the Ghosts That Walk This Earth by David Rovix, my guest for today's Song of the Soul. Tell you what happened Walking downtown Making something for me to Pound in the ground Some kid pulled a trigger Then I was dead Cause that's what happens when a shotgun Blows off your head I was just 24 Much too young to die my reason for living I didn't know why 
I had no time to show what my life could be worth. Now I'm just another of all the ghosts that walk this earth. Yes, I wander the world and I see all the others, the dead and forsaken. My sisters and brothers, all of us wondering, what are we doing here? Just stuck on this planet for who knows how many years in Auschwitz or Baghdad. It's always the same, forgotten and restless. No one calling our name. I visit my old friend. They make love and give birth. While I'm just another of all the ghosts that walk this earth. the places I've been Where the flowers grow wild Where the napalm meets skin I wish I could treat it And be back in my life Maybe we'd live in China Maybe you'd be my wife Maybe I would feel something Not just angry and sad Always just wishing For the life that I had I watch you and your lover In such glorious mirth While I'm just another Of all the ghosts that walk this earth frequently when we release things in our muscles, grief soup comes out. It, and when, yeah. we, when we open to it, it, it transforms us. Some people take that grief and they become law and order advocates. You know, it's uh, gangsters killed Eric, so therefore let's crush all these evil people, give me a gun and I'll go after them. Why didn't you tend to go in that direction? Why did you instead 
go the direction you have towards global justice and so on? Well, I was already aware of reality by the time Eric was killed, so it was just certainly not an option to go in the direction of revenge. But uh, except to understand, actually, that he, he, in a sense, was a victim of racism in, in the U.S., although he was white and not, he wasn't a victim of reverse racism or something stupid like that, some concept that doesn't actually exist. He was a victim of living in a society where racism was is one of the operating principles. You know, he was living in a society where so many Latinos are living in poverty and being hunted by the federal authorities and deported and mistreated and abused and victims of so many crimes. He's living in a society where this exists and where this victimization of this entire population in some small way, you know, has violent results and overtones, I mean, in terms of uh, gang violence and just hatred of the society that we uh, live in, perfectly understandably. So to the extent that I want revenge, it's against the U.S. government. It's against the ruling class, the capitalist system. I don't want revenge against these poor, illiterate youth. Unlike most Americans, you seem to be fairly conversant with at least several of the countries over in Europe. Do you have a sense that they've dealt better, maybe more thoroughly, maybe they're a bit ahead of us, in terms of dealing with things like injustice within the system, racism, that kind of thing? Absolutely. It depends on the country, and I, I can't, I mean, I think there's all kinds of problems in many different countries, especially in Eastern Europe, there's all kinds of problems that were largely caused by the United States, I might add, and that's not just, uh, you know, rhetoric, that's reality. But then there's all kinds of other problems that go way back and, and have a lot to do with a lot of other things as well. But generally, I'd say, like, for example, in, in Denmark and in Sweden and Norway, I'd say that just having a social safety net that's so solid and so there for everyone who lives there, but they also have incredible services for everyone. You know, so many crimes that happen and so much uh, prejudice and stuff that goes on in societies is basically a product uh, somehow or another, basically born out of the tension that exists in society that's really about poverty and, and a sense of scarcity. You know, and when, when things are scarce, when there's a lot of poverty, people might try to blame someone who's not necessarily to blame, especially when there's, you know, right-wing talk show hosts all over the place telling them to blame people that aren't to blame. So they have a lot less problems in a lot of ways than, than we do, and I think a lot of that is because, you know, anywhere you live in Denmark, if you're going to go to high school, you're going to go to a good high school, and it's going to be a public school, and it's going to be just like all the rest of the public schools. And it doesn't matter if you're living in a predominantly Arab neighborhood or a predominantly Danish neighborhood. Maybe there will be some slight differences, but basically they all receive the same amount of funding. And everyone in the country has medical care, so there's no worries about that. Everyone is guaranteed housing. I mean, it's not a utopia by any means, but these basic things are taken care of, and that makes all the difference in the world. I was wondering if the way you took care of your medical and dental and everything is during your tour you could stop in at a doctor over there and get everything taken care of. Is that the way it works for visitors? Well, no. I mean, you have to have a card that identifies you as a resident or a citizen of Denmark or whatever. I was referring to in the movie Sicko where Michael Moore took people mm. from New York down to Cuba. And, of course, they walked in and got their medical stuff. And I just thought maybe we have to just go to third world countries so we could get decent medical care. 
Well, absolutely. I mean, I, I don't know if Cuba has a general policy of giving free medical care to Americans in distress, but I know that you can get really cheap medical care there as a foreigner, and a lot of people go there to get cheap medical care, and, and people also go there from all over Latin America to get free medical care as well. And certainly any American or anybody else in the world can go to medical school in Cuba for free as long as they promise to work for the poor for a few years afterwards. Well, drifting down towards Cuba, not too far from there, right in the U.S., is Miami. And I think you were active in some of the global justice work down there, too, global justice protests, weren't you? Well, I've been active as a musician and and pretty much in no other capacity other than occasional journalist. But yeah, I've always tried to be involved with anything that's going on around me and go to the places where there's stuff going on around uh, these trade deals and these talks and raising attention about these crazy policies that our government has. Miami in 2003 at the Free Trade Area of the Americas talks was a real turning point for the global justice movement in the U.S. in that it was just the most outrageous, disproportionate, militaristic response on the part of the authorities that this country had seen in decades. It was a, it was a death blow for the global justice movement. And the protests were not as big as people had been hoping, and the response of the authorities was so outrageously fear-mongering, militaristic kind of stuff that it had a real lasting impact. And I was there for that, and there hasn't been a protest like it since in the United States. Did they come after you with their billy clubs or their tear gas? Did you actually get caught up in that stuff? In Miami, I was locked into this amphitheater with about 200 other people, and I was on the stage when the police outside of the amphitheater started tear gassing and tasing and clubbing everybody. Those of us inside the amphitheater were not able to get out of the amphitheater, so no, we didn't get, <laughs> we didn't get tear gassed. We just watched and I'm, in my case, I uh, entertained them as they were being tear gassed. Leaders of the world had gathered to make the planet freer for free trade, to create a better business climate for all the profits they had made. Surrounded by an army, there for their defense, armed with APCs and copters, and lots of common sense behind a fence, behind a wall. That shouts you shall not pass Broken skulls, plastic bullets And a thousand gallons of tear gas And the world leaders kept on talking Behind the moat upon the hill And they boasted of prosperity In their latest free trade bill They thank God, they thank Boeing They thank the World Bank They thank the firepower Of the M1 tank They defended their positions And the glory of their class With broken skulls Plastic bullets And a thousand gallons of tear gas streets we chanted we have no clubs or guns we've just come to tell the people the evil ways this system runs but the truth can set us free the rulers all knew well so they drowned the truth with copters and the ringing of the bell with their tasers on our bodies and our faces in the grass broken skulls plastic bullets and a thousand gallons of tear gas 
hid behind the lines a half a million men in blue when the rich men moved their lips they recorded them on cue the occupation of a city by an army of police wasn't worthy of a mention from the reporters of the peace neither were the wounded children or the boarded glass or the broken skulls plastic bullets and a thousand gallons of tear gas some flavor of what it was like in Miami when David Rovix was there at the event he was speaking of and he wrote that song about. David, did you end up being thankful or unhappy that you got locked inside and protected from all of that stuff? Have you actually been caught before, thrown in jail, uh, any of that physical abuse perpetrated upon you? Well, no. I tend to be pretty... Uh cowardly that really at, at these uh, big protests and I've never felt inspired to be one of the ones right on the front lines facing off with the police and all that stuff. I tend to just not see the point in uh, you know getting in fights with these guys who are heavily armed and wearing riot gear and all this stuff. Were you raised to be a uh, violent ruffian, um, confrontational, no. any of those stuff? No, no, none of that. And of course I was raised by Certainly one about pacifist and one who certainly tended in that direction. And were you raised to favor drug use? I'm, I, this um, actually, I'm segueing into the next yeah. one. <laughs> nice segue. <laughs> no, I, <laughs> I was not raised to, uh, you know, no, my parents uh, did not drink or smoke anything. But they kind of were a little early for the whole hippie thing. I mean, they definitely got into a lot of hippie-related stuff, but they were both a little too old to be in the thick of that. And I was quite a bit too young for it, but, you know, of course, it's not really about being around for the 60s. It's more about the results of the 60s, which certainly one of them was to make uh, marijuana much more widespread than it had been before. And certainly I'm a big fan of it for a lot of different reasons. And uh, I would never certainly uh, promote uh, the use of, of any substance for people generally, but I think marijuana is potentially a very constructive thing used in all kinds of different ways for all kinds of different reasons, and it should be just as legal as, as any, uh, I'd say it's on the level of maybe aspirin or something in terms of how controlled a substance it is and should be. In the song, Cannabis Cafe, are you talking about a real cafe that's uh, up there north of you? Yeah, there used to be a cafe in Vancouver called the Cannabis Cafe around the time that I wrote that song. I think soon after I wrote that song, it went out of business. But there are cafes like that in Vancouver. I'm pretty sure there still are. I mean, basically, pot is really largely decriminalized in British Columbia and also all up and down the West Coast in the U.S. as well, from Alaska to Arizona. It's decriminalized in all those areas for medicinal use. There's definitely federal authorities going after people, but and, and certainly, uh, you know, local cops and stuff. But it's an interesting situation. I mean, it's uh, it's an in, in a sort of gray area in terms of its legality. This is included in your Song of the Soul, and I was trying to figure out various ways that this might speak of what's important to you. 
one possibility is that you're a Carlos Castaneda fan and that drug use is actually a way to uh, connect with the ancients and whatever, you know, like that. Or um, just liberty is important to you. So what's, what is your reason? Why is this included? Well, I guess I was thinking about sort of my life and evolution and stuff, and that song doesn't represent everything in any kind of way, but it kind of hits on the um, hippie countercultural influence, which is definitely strong for me, certainly from my discovery of activism and, and politics and, and writers and, and uh, speakers and musicians. and I mean, it all, mostly, it comes out of the 60s, and certainly there's been all kinds of other influences for me culturally and musically and politically that that are predate the 60s and, and are since the 60s but the 60s and that whole particular countercultural phenomenon was profoundly influential on me musically and culturally certainly the uh, vestiges of the 60s in the form of the Grateful Dead and their followers was a big part of my life when I was in my sort of late teens early 20s um, cannabis was central to that and so were psychedelic drugs and I, I, I also have songs that allude to them but certainly not much a part of my life today but I'm a big Carlos Castaneda fan and I do think that psychedelic drugs have all kinds of potential positive uses and actually I think most people should do them a lot more often and society would be a much better place well, unfortunately, I guess they can't go up to Cannabis Cafe since it's closed down, but it is a place that David Rovix visited, and he wrote a song about it called Cannabis Cafe. I wish I was up in Vancouver At the Cannabis Cafe Smoking good old Sensimilia At the beginning of the day But here I am in New York City now Central Park Getting kidnapped by the police Today sometime before dark But I wish I was up in Vancouver At the Cannabis Cafe Smoking good old Sensimilia At the beginning of the day Down upon me frowning He said kid get on your way Just don't start out your mornings With an espresso and a shade I said I wish I was up in Vancouver At the Cannabis Cafe Smoking good old Sensimilia At the beginning of the day Here. Portland Caught one up to BC Took the bus over to Hastings Street To have a bowl with my coffee Now I'm up in Vancouver At the Cannabis Cafe Smoking good old Sensimilia At the beginning of the day One more time Now I'm up in Vancouver 
the cannabis cafe. Smoking good old Sans Amelia at the beginning of the day. status, David, of cannabis around Portland, Oregon, where you live? In the state of Oregon, it's decriminalized for medicinal use, but it's still illegal otherwise. But I don't think the fines for it tend to be very high, and, and you know, I don't think people tend to be going to prison too much for it, but I don't know the details really, and I'm not the right person to ask. But I know that uh, on the West Coast generally, the situation is a lot better than in most of the rest of the country. We've been over a fair amount of territory, David. I think that, if I'm not mistaken, over the last couple of years, a really big part of your life has been uh, a voice that we've heard in the background as we've been doing the interview, your daughter, Layla. You have out on your website uh, an entire collection of songs, maybe a CD of songs, that uh, I would identify as kids' song. Did you do kids' songs before your daughter was born, ever? I never did, no, but I did predict that once I had a child, I would start writing children's songs, just because many, many songwriters, when they have kids, they start writing children's songs, and that's what happened with me, and I've just been having a blast with it. I mean, I don't know what else I would do, because when you're an active parent and you're spending a lot of time with your kid, then, you know, naturally you start seeing the world from their eyes, and so then you know, the things that they're doing become, you can relate to them, and and, it's, and I'm writing songs about things that I can relate to and things that are somehow going on in my life, and really, even if they're, many of them are political in nature, it's still, they're personal, they're all personal. In some way or another, they're about my own experiences, but, of course, the children's songs are especially personal, um, although they're also universal, because anybody who has had kids, any kid can potentially relate to these songs. Do you end up singing songs, I assume, a fair amount with Layla around? And if you do, um, do you end up censoring yourself so that you're, uh, Who Would Jesus Bomb or All of Us Walk This Earth? Are those songs that you can or will or have sung around Layla, or do you find yourself saying, like, well, instead of that, maybe I better sing a song like the pirate song? Well, I wouldn't not sing any of my grown-up songs around Layla because of any content that I think that would be like a problem for her, but I tend not to practice those songs much anyway because I still do enough gigs that I get plenty of practice with those songs just playing gigs, although there's a lot of my songs for grown-ups that I keep on meaning to relearn eventually. But, you know, what I end up doing mostly is, is just uh, messing around with music with her i mean and also just playing with her doing non-musical things a lot but i play the ukulele a lot with her because i'm trying to learn how to play the ukulele and it's such a great kid sized instrument so she's got one and i've got one so i'll play the ukulele and then she'll pick up her ukulele and play it and sing and, and it's just a blast and it tends to be more interesting for her if i just improvise words and sing about stuff that's actually going on right then and then other times if she's into playing with her Legos or whatever, I can just practice some of my children's songs in the background, and, and she's cool with that. But I think she'd get bored if I were playing too many of my adult songs. The songs that I've listened to, of kid songs that you've done, most of them don't have much of a strong uh, moral issue kind of thing to it. And I was wondering if the pirate song, which you've chosen to include in your Song of the Soul, if that had a moral to the story or something you're supposed to get out of it, or is it just supposed to be fun uh, to think of out there with the wild pirates? 
Well, there's definitely, it's supposed to be fun, but it also definitely has a moral to it. And I certainly believe strongly in, in the principle of robbing the rich to give to the poor. And I think pirates actually were historically a, really a, a social movement that we, the working class, should be proud of because it was a movement that really shook the British Empire to its core. It had more of an impact on the British Empire than any war that the British Empire ever was involved in for the course of hundreds of years. It was an amazing thing. And people love pirates, and they're fun, and kids love pirates. But various songs have a bit of a moral kind of angle to them, but m many of them are just about, you know, dogs and poop and whatever and stuff that's fun. But there's a bunch that are kind of with a not very overt kind of little message to them. Well, let's not lose the pirate song in there. I think people are going to enjoy it. It's by David Rovix. The pirate song. I walked outside one day and a man was standing there. He had a great big beard and lots and lots of hair. He said, won't you come down to the shore and join my jolly crew? We'll wander around the world beneath the skies of blue. We'll sail upon the seven seas, travel near and far. Take from the rich and give to the poor and say har, 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 har. We'll go out on the ocean, and when the coast is clear, we'll eat birthday cake each day of the year. We'll land on a little island, then we'll form a choir, blow on whistles and kazoos, and dance around a fire. We'll sail upon the seven seas, travel near and far. Take from the rich and give to the poor and say har, 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 har. If we see the Navy, we will shout with pride. We are scary, hairy pirates, so you better run and hide. We'll stamp our feet upon the floor and our peg legs, too. We'll take your stolen treasure, because that's what pirates do. We'll sail upon the seven seas, travel near and far. Take from the rich and give to the poor and say har, 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 har. We'll sail upon the seven seas, travel near and far. Take from the rich and give to the poor and say har, 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 har. That was the pirate song. David, I have a joke for you, a little riddle here. Did you hear about the new pirate movie that's coming out? No. It's rated R. R, 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 yes. <laughs> well... I think we've run out of time here for Song of the Soul, David, but I want to just give my appreciation for all of your music and, of course, all your work around the world and that you chose to share it with us today, especially since that takes away from some of the time you can be interacting with Layla. <laughs> it's okay. Thank you very much for having me. That was singer-songwriter David Rovix, my guest for today's Song of the Soul. His website is davidrovix.com. And I also have a visit with David as part of my Spirit in Action program. Check it out on my northernspiritradio.org website. It looks like I've got a few minutes left, so I'm going to add one more song from David Rovick's rich collection of music. It's a beautiful and a very sad song about a young Palestinian in occupied territory. To finish off David Rovick's Song of the Soul, this is... The song the songbird sings. 
was another Friday morning. I was among the olive trees, out looking for birds to catch. My father, his friends, and me. I had my string and net and a nimble eye there beside the farmer's field where the songbirds fly. When you're catching birds, the world disappears, and a thousand songs of autumn are all that fills your ears. They sing their songs so brightly at the dawning of the day. They fly back and forth over the fence where we must stay away. You can see the birds beneath the clouds. Watch them spread their wings. Listen to the wind and the song the songbirds sing. It's so good to come here. So far from all the sound, all the shooting and the shouting, and the tanks upon the ground. I just wish I could live here beside this olive grove, just me, my friends and family, and a small wood burning stove. You can see the birds beneath the clouds, watch them spread their wings, listen. To the wind and the song the songbirds sing. Week I caught three sparrows. It was quite a day. Now I'm bound for glory. That's what they say. I can hear them talk about me, shedding tears upon a sack. Inside there lies a child with four bullets in his back. You can see the birds beneath the clouds. Watch them spread their wings. Listen to the wind and the song the songbird sings. You can see the birds beneath the clouds. Watch them spread their wings. Listen to the wind and the song the songbird sings. The theme music for Song of the Soul is by Chris Williamson, and it's called Song of the Soul. My name is Mark Helpsmeet, and this is a Northern Spirit Radio production. You can listen to this program again, track down the list of songs included, and a whole lot more on my website, northernspiritradio.org. And I invite you to share your Song of the Soul with my listeners. Just contact me via my website. And please, join me weekly for Song of the Soul. You can be happy.